Welcome to Catalyst, the travel and purpose podcast number eight. Today, we'll be talking to Robert McQueen about his trip to the Gobi Desert in Mongolia with Waves for Water. Catalyst is the online platform about social action and travel. These podcasts are a series of conversations about social impact and travel. I'm Eden Flaherty, and I'm going to be your host. I'd like to welcome Robert McQueen, who is the Field Operations Director at Waves for Water. Hi, Rob. Hey, how you doing? Good, good. You? I'm doing well, man. Doing well. A little bit of jet lag, but uh, hanging in there. <laughs> oh, great. Thanks for thanks for coming on. First of all, could you tell us about your trip to the Gobi Desert and what you did while you were there? Yeah. So uh, I had the opportunity to go to the Gobi Desert and do a bit of a moto ride with BMW Motor Ride. This is in uh, August of last year. What we did is we followed uh, the, the trail of the GS Trophy. So GS Trophy is is BMW Motor Rad's kind of biannual rally, high-end rally, where people have to qualify from all over the world to ride and go in and actually compete. So there's teams from each country that come in and compete and show their skills off riding a BMW GS1200. And so I got the opportunity to ride with a bunch of pretty amazing riders, not the, not the guys that competed, but the guys that were good enough or had enough time to come afterwards and right. ride through the Gobi. It was it was amazing. Yeah, we started in Ulaanbaatar, which I probably butchered that pronunciation, Ulaanbaatar. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a victim of the Idaho public school system, so sometimes my pronunciation <laughs> of crazy words like Ulaanbaatar is a little bit off. Uh, yeah. But we started in Ulaanbaatar, headed south through the Mongolian steppes, or not steppes, but plateau, hit the Gobi Desert, and then turned west for about three days. Kind of as we got really deep in the Gobi Desert, we turned back north and headed up to Karakoram, which is the, the birth birthplace of uh, Chinggis Khan, uh, which I, I, I don't know. So this this may have just been like what blew my mind. I didn't realize that all the education that I'd ever had, every all of my studying and and notes about Mongolia and, you know, the Khan Empire, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of shaped the world, that we were pronouncing his name wrong. And not just pronouncing it wrong, like, in our, like spelling it wrong, writing the entire thing. Like, really? Genghis Khan's name yeah, his name's not Genghis Khan. Uh, what what is it then? It's Chinggis, like completely different. Wow. So it's C H I N N G I S. I probably spelled that wrong as well. But it is not Genghis Khan. Marco Polo pronounced it wrong, and we've been going wrong with it the entire time. <laughs> <laughs> it, it blew my mind. I went to the, I went to the National Museum in Ulaanbaatar, and it was like. Hey, here's Chinggis Khan. I was like, hey, when am I going to learn about Genghis Khan? They're like, oh, no, no, you're wrong. <laughs> you're completely wow. wrong. Uh, <laughs> so, yeah, so got to go to Karakoram, which is just this incredible city. At one point, it was the biggest city in the world, the center of trade. So got to go to Karakoram. And then we kind of turned right at the base of the Mongolian steppes, turned back east and shot back to Ulaanbaatar. So we did, got six hard days of riding in just around 2,000 kilometers. It was pretty insane and just what an, an incredible experience so that was the fun part of it but it wasn't just a motorcycle trip right you were also doing work with waves for water could you tell us about what that involved yeah of course so uh th- this trip was it was it was kind of a unique experience because i love riding motorcycles we got out there and rode and then our entire work with waves for water our partnership with motorrad and the entire reason i went on this trip was to actually reach some of the nomadic populations uh, in Mongolia that, that are just have a pretty large issue with access to clean water. So 
a lot of these, like, it was kind of amazing to me. Like they, they really stick with their, their classic nomadic lifestyle. And so right. their water sources in the Gobi desert are really either streams and rivers that exist out there. They're like desert oasises or these really shallow built wells that the families kind of take turns maintaining. So none of them are really a controlled water source. So when you get new levels of, of snow melt pushing down bacteria into the, into the streams, you also have just any rain that'll take all that livestock and bacterial contamination that exists in a nomadic culture and push that into the water source. I uh, have a pretty large issue with access to clean water. So uh, the entire point of the program was every single day on these rides, we had a predetermined nomadic family that we connected with. And then we would actually ride out, give between 10 and 20 water filtration systems, train them how to use it, and then get that into those nomadic communities to help alleviate the issues they had with waterborne illness. Great. So beyond delivering just the water filtration systems, part of your trip is also this idea of training the trainers in order yeah. to, to share that with more community leaders. Can you talk us through what that involves and why that's important to the project? Yeah, train the trainers really the core of what we do at Waves for Water. So while the water filters is a great little piece of technology, like that's that's more the tool. What we do is, is a train the trainer thought process, which is instead of just taking this tool and giving it to them, we're going to actually teach them not only how to use it, but also how how to teach other people to use it. We find in that process, it, it actually creates an ownership of the program. Mm -hmm. So different, it's still, you know, teach a man to fish thought process. Yeah. So instead of just, you know, giving somebody a fish, which in, in case would be a water filter, it works like showing them how to really do it and then letting them translate that so they can teach other people and have the program grow. And so instead of trying to track down, like we would go to one or two families in this nomadic community, but they're spread out over 20 or 30 miles. It's not like they're all sitting in one spot. So for a program like Mongolia, it really highlights how effective the train the trainer is because I can go to two or three little families, a little cluster, and I can give them enough support for their entire community. And I teach them, I train them, and then, then they go on and train the rest of their community and equip them with the filters. So it allows the program to scale on its own, something mm -hmm. that we just wouldn't be able to do, you know, a couple guys on motorcycles with a few bags of filters, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned in that because of the nature of the nomadic tribes in M Mongolia, that train, the trainer is really important to kind of access more people. Can you tell us about the, the culture of the nomadic tribes, the landscape and the overall experience of being in Mongolia? It is vast. So I think it's one of the least densely populated countries in the world. And it is the, the scope of it. Like I'm, I'm from the mountains. I'm, I'm from the, the, the west of Idaho. So I'm used to large terrain. But I think just the vastness of Mongolia really blew my mind. Like when you get outside of Ulaanbaatar, you get away from that city cluster and you start to move away from it. Everything just gets bigger. Right. And, and as it spreads out, it's not just bigger. It's, it almost feels empty, like kind of a, a – I don't want to say wasteland because that's not at all what it feels like. But just this immense scope of, of not a lot of people except for you, know, you have your, these caravans of these crazy Russian vans – these all-terrain minivans, more or right. less, and then you have giant trucks, and then you have a lot of motorcycles, and then you still have a large connection to that original Mongolian horse culture. So the travel through Mongolia was insane. I, I think one of the craziest parts for me was we'd sat down and had lunch with one of the families we were working with, and they were just the most hospitable and open, warm, amazing people you could think of. And they were 
I, I think would probably give me the shirt off their back in the middle of the desert and with, with no, not a second thought. So we're having food, which was spaghetti and kind of some boiled mutton right. and then a little bit of horse, which is an interesting thing to eat, has a different taste to it. Uh-huh. And then their classic drink, which is a fermented mayor's milk. That's kind of like their beer, which, you know, I recommend trying, yeah. try anything once uh, and maybe once like once was enough for me on the whole for me oh, yeah. it was an interesting experience but it's it, you know you got to give it a shot when when in mongolia and then from there we're in this kind of kind of just this vast open like center of the gobi and then from there we started riding kind of turning a little bit north and we we got to this this large like you could see in the distance for about four hours of riding you kind of just see this scope of these sand dunes just mm-hmm. in the desert in, in the distance and they just got bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and I knew that we were heading towards them to do another implementation with another group of people. But you couldn't tell until you were like right on top of the sand dunes. And you go through this uh-huh. small little like kind of desert wadi and it opens up into probably the most beautiful desert oasis I've ever seen. So you've got almost wow. six, 700 meter tall sand dunes. And at the base of this is this stark, like almost neon green oasis that stretches for probably half a mile along the base with one desert spring coming up that everyone was coming and getting water from, horses and livestock and just people. And it was the most beautiful place I think I've ever been. Because you just have this contrast with riding across this open. And the the initial part of the desert, like the Gobi is not, like when you think of the desert, it's not like the Sahara. It's not rolling sand Mm -hmm. dunes. It's rocky and rough. And I think of more of like the surface of like a a desert planet. You would think of like sci-fi, like like more aggressive like that. And then you get to these beautiful dunes that you you would picture from like the Sahara Desert and at the base of it, there's this desert oasis. And so Mongolia, like the only way I can say about Mongolia is you have this kind of contrast. So you have this incredibly harsh climate, like rough, like insane climate. Then you have this transition to just picturesque beauty. And it's almost the same with the people. You have one of some of the toughest people that have ever existed. And I mean, you look through (laughs) history, no one can really argue that Mongolians are not incredibly tough people (laughs) you just you can't and that that stays true to today for where they live and how they live but they're also the most like warm and caring and like still like family-centered people you could imagine so it's it was the experience was amazing the landscape reflects the people and and vice versa in the most amazing way it sounds like a really amazing place to be but it also sounds like a very tough place to be at times how did you navigate the country's culture communicate with the people you were working with and get in touch with the community leaders who would be trained in the water filtration systems yeah so this really kind of speaks to our methods and 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 really what we do at waves for water so when you when you think of train the trainer obviously that builds a connection between us and who we're working with so uh, John Rose, my, our founder and, and, and my boss had gone to Mongolia earlier that year on horseback yeah. actually. And so oh, wow. working through our regional director from Asia, he was able mm-hmm. to connect with some of his contacts in Mongolia, which then John went and did an initial pilot program, just a few locations to test it out. And he built some relationships with people there. And then I was able to work with those relationships too, specifically Ogi and Uyanga, that then were kind of our guides and local contacts. Because what we do at Waves for Water is like, I can't be this this guy from uh, from the U.S. traveling to every location over and over again. So when I travel there once, we we teach somebody how to do the program, and then in that process, we identify just like those incredible individuals that you meet everywhere, the ones who really attach to the program, and the ones who are like, hey, I want to make this go further. 
And that's who we found in, in Ogi and Uyanga. And that's who really set up the connections to the local populations and, and worked with the program with us. So in the beginning, like they would translate my trainings and we would work together on it. Then by the end, I was really just there supporting them as they ran through the program themselves and it really become theirs, which is just the beauty of this program. So we had our local guides that really took care of us and, and made the trip just smooth and, and so enjoyable. Awesome. Awesome. So before you joined this organization, you were in the army for many years. Yeah. Yeah. How did this help prepare you for your work with Waves of Water? You know, it's it's kind of one of those things when you look at, at the military, especially in kind of the, the as you would call it, we call the global war on terror. So right. uh, it's it's one of those things where it's no longer the thought process of we're just moving and finding, fixing, destroying the enemy and moving on. Like that's not the world that we live in. And so every deployment and work I did was really kind of focused on, on not just like complex problem solving, but living and working with local communities and local cultures. So I would say definitely during my experiences in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, I mean, I worked with at one time in Iraq, I was working with eight different tribes, eight, eight different sheikhs that were managing different volunteers. And so I really, I really learned a lot about cross-cultural communication. During my time in Afghanistan, I was I was living in the mountains and, and literally living village to village and working mm-hmm. with local like local tribal leaders and government leaders and, and representatives. And so you really learn how to kind of take a step away from your your norms and, and integrate yourself into somebody else's culture. And then that really helped me with this job where I can just I understand that like hey, I'm I'm the guy from the US. Like I need to kind of step away from what, what I expect things to be, my norms. Yeah. And integrate myself into somebody else's. And that's really the only way to like connect with somebody else's, find out what, it, hey, what's life like for them? Like get rid of your thought process and step into, the, in, into theirs. And that really was a huge piece from the military uh, that I took away on my initial deployments. And then I, I had the opportunity during my last deployment in the military in, in 2013, 2014 to work out of the U.S. Embassy in Sarajevo. And during that time frame, like I worked really heavily with international government organizations, a variety of nonprofit humanitarian aid organizations, a lot of like the UN and other inter- intergovernmental organizations. And then I honestly, that's where I met Waves for Water, leading and working in a large international disaster response effort. So yeah, I've kind of had this unique path in the military that took me from starting off and as just a straight leg infantry guy that ended up doing a ton of cross-cultural work and then actually working hand-in-hand with a lot of nonprofits and humanitarian aid organizations yeah. uh, and then directly into disaster response that fed me right into a job now. I'm working for a humanitarian aid organization that does a ton of disaster response and cross-cultural communication. So it was just a natural progression, yeah. which one may not think. <laughs> no, no. Amazing. But you're not the only veteran at Waves for Water. You're part of what's called the Clean Water Corps, which is a platform to allow veterans to help tackle the water crisis. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, that, that was actually the reason that I left active duty was John reached out to me in, uh, a few years after we'd worked together in Bosnia and said, hey, I want to build a veteran division inside of Waves for Water. Would you come help me build that? And I absolutely jumped at the chance. So what we built is called the Clean Water Corps. And so the Clean Water Corps is a platform for veterans to not only get involved in in the global water crisis, which is an absolute need, and and the skill sets that we just talked about fit perfectly with it, but it also addresses what's one of the biggest issues in the veteran community, which is purpose. And so if you look at the 
if you look at anybody, purpose is critical. And, and I would say more so for veterans, mm-hmm. because when you're in the military, you, you have this benefit of being part of a large group of people that all have a very common purpose. And it's a purpose that almost every, that every person in that organization has raised their hand and said, I'm willing to give my life for this. Like I am here and it yeah. means enough to me that my life is, means less than the goal we're trying to achieve. Uh, and that's a pretty special thing. Like there's a brotherhood and, and a sisterhood and a family inside of that. You cannot, you, you can't step past. And so when you leave that, even for the best organizations out there, the best job, or, or you reconnect with your family, there, there, there's a gap and there's something missing. And, and that purpose, that lack of purpose is, is a driving force that, that's difficult for, for a lot of veterans to manage when they leave active duty. And so mm-hmm. the opportunity to do like the most amazing job in the world that I do now and then also yeah. share that with, with other veterans and in the end also help myself heal has been just the mm-hmm. most amazing thing in the world. So the Clean Water Corps is, wasn't just the reason that I left the military. It is, it, it's kind of my, become my new family and purpose. And it is, you know, it's an awesome platform that I couldn't be more proud of. That's fantastic. That's great to hear. One of the focuses of the Clean Water Corps and Waves for Water as a whole seems to be your ability to act with uh, what you call a guerrilla humanitarian mindset. Can you explain what this means and why it's important? Yeah. So when you look at guerrilla humanitarianism, like really what we focus on is kind of bypassing the bureaucracy. So anything international, anything that works cross governmental lines, anything that moves cross border, there's, there's bureaucracies across the board and, and they range in scope of how difficult they are to work with, how actually effective they yeah. are. Anybody who's stood in a customs line in Southeast Asia or immigration anywhere knows that like bureaucracies are a pain in the ass. Like you're, yeah. It's process and, and it's not always effective. In fact, very rarely is it ever effective. And so what you end up with in, in humanitarian assistance, especially international humanitarian assistance, is you end up with a lot of cumbersome processes that really prevent or incredibly hamper the ability of, of nonprofits to reach out to the people and to take their solution to the people that really need it. And so what we do is we kind of look at it two ways is one where we're small and agile. So it allows us to kind of bypass and work through those bureaucracies very quickly, or it allows us like the really humanitarian mindset is that at times we are absolutely more willing to ask for forgiveness instead of permission to get the job done and help the people in need. And so that's, that's really is, is the core focus where we're, we're going to find a way to get to the people that need our solution. And we're not going to hit a roadblock and be like, oh, it's not going to work here. Let's go somewhere else where we can let it happen, which is pretty consistent. Like you hit a roadblock in some countries where it's incredibly difficult to do work. And a lot of organizations will kind of step away and go somewhere else. Yeah. What we've kind of pride ourselves on is not hitting that roadblock and moving, moving somewhere else. Like, wait, we hit the roadblock. We're going to find a way to get past it. We're going to do a lot of things that a lot of other NGOs and nonprofits won't do. Like maybe we'll partner with a different nonprofit. Maybe we'll find a way to bypass that bureaucracy directly. Mm -hmm. We'll partner with a foreign military or military to get us there. Like we will find a way to get the solution to the end. And that, and that's the most important part is getting to the people that need, that need our assistance. And, And we're willing to kind of really not get too stuck on, on the bureaucracy and the process and find a way to get there. Amazing. And it, it isn't just these, I'm going to call direct missions to take water filters, though. You also have a volunteer program called Couriers, where ordinary travelers can supply water filtration systems to the communities they travel to. Can you describe this program and how people can get involved with it? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the core of what we do in all of our programs is do what you love and help along the way. And that's not just a motto. Like that really is who we are at heart. 
And so even our projects we do, like we look, we look for our passions in life and, and be it moto or surfing or adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we do our part along the way for, for our full-time job as waves for water. But what, what's more important is like, we're a small organization and the water crisis and this, this problem is huge. So how do we mobilize a lot of people to make a difference on their own? And so what the solution is, or what the program we have is the courier program. Mm-hmm. And so the courier program is an opportunity for anybody who travels to reach out to us, get a few filters or crowdfund and raise money for a few filters, and then go out and make a difference on their travels. So go surfing in Indonesia, take a couple of filters and impact one or two families and have an impact along the way because no one organization, no one individual is going to solve this crisis. It's going to take everyone working together and our way to empower everybody to make a difference when they travel is the courier program. Uh, it's, it's, it's really simple to get involved with. You go to our website, wavesforwater.org. You tie, you take a look at the courier program, you click on it and you can start your own project page. So you can tell people about where you're going, the impact you want to have, crowdfund a little bit of money. Uh, and then once that, that program is funded and ready to go, uh, then we kind of get on the phone or email with you. We, we give you a video of how the filters work. We teach you about implementation. And then potentially, if we can, we'll connect you with some of our network on the ground to guide you in the right direction so you can have an impact that's not just one-off, but also ties into the impact of other people and, and, and the program. Amazing. And you mentioned on your site, you're able to start a project to let people know your travel plans and stuff. How do people actually get the filters to take with them and how much do they cost? So the filters are, are they're $50 a filter through the courier program. Um, and so once you start your program, once you say, I want to be a courier, uh, whether you create a project page and crowdfund or not on our site, the filters come directly from us. So then if you crowdfund it, the money is donated through the crowdfunding page, and then we ship you the filters as well as all the training material and the conversation starts or vice versa. If you just reach out to us directly through the website, say, hey, I want to be a courier, then the money is just comes directly from you to us, $50 a filter, and then the process continues again. So it's they get directly from us. And each of these $50 filters, how many individuals would that help? So each filter has the potential to reach up to 100 people. And so the way that's kind of quantified is the filters produce roughly enough water, like the flow rate is enough for about 100 people per day. They have a lifetime of a million gallons of water, but what's really important for the people they can impact is the the flow rate. And so for about 130 gallons per day is the rough number that can come through the filter. So that's roughly enough water for 100 people per day. Uh, And then on these, the way we kind of recommend this is that one filter per family is the way we like to do it. Because if one family gets a filter, you're only reaching about five to 10 people per day between family and extended family, which allows Mm -hmm. that filter to last for roughly 20 years. So you have a much longer impact of the filter at that point. Wow. You mentioned before this issue of clean drinking water is on a global scale, and it obviously goes way beyond the Gobi Desert where you took this trip. What other trips have you taken with Waves for Water? And why did the Gobi Desert trip stand out for you? I, I've kind of I'm I'm in the job of a lifetime. I don't know any other way to say that. <laughs> I, I, I yeah, I've had the opportunity to travel all over Southeast yeah. Asia, South America, <laughs> Europe, and and so I mean, some amazing trips for me have been everywhere from amazing experiences: India, Peru, Thailand, Indonesia, Costa Rica, Nicaragua, Mexico, and I, I just keep going on and on. Other amazing experiences have been working following hurricanes Irma and Maria in the Caribbean. Uh, which are just amazing mm-hmm. ones. And so for me, kind of in line, like why the Gobi Desert stands out to me is, is twofold. Is one, I love riding motorcycles. And I'm going to be totally honest, my wife won't let me have one. So 
<laughs> so when I told her, I was like, I'm going to go ride motorcycles across the Gobi Desert. <laughs> she just kind of looked at me and was like, what? So in, in the military, I got to go through for, for my job and, and time and special operations. <laughs> I, I got to do some amazing things. One of them was I went through some amazing motorcycle courses to ride. You know, we rode motorcycles in Afghanistan and, and, other, pla- and other places. So it's like, I have, I've got this skill set that I love to do. And my wife was like, hey, you've got three kids. You've spent most of your life doing a bunch of dangerous things. There's no way we're adding a motorcycle (laughs) on top of that. So any chance I get where my job can be ride a motorcycle, (laughs) I'm going to do it. And so that's why the Gobi Desert was like an original for me. Like I am riding a moto across the Gobi Desert. It's amazing. Just do what you love and help along the way. I was like, yes, this is the greatest thing ever. And then I got there and the reason that Gobi stuck out to me is, is just for the same reasons I hit on, like the, yeah. the correlation between the culture and I've become a absolute, like I love integrating into other cultures. I love getting out of my comfort zone and meeting people that are so different than me, but also so the same, like no matter where you go, people are people and we have the same thoughts and desires and, and it's just the way we do it's a little bit different. And so the yeah. Gobi desert initially started out as that amazing excuse to go ride a motorcycle that my wife couldn't be mad at me for. And what it became was one of my favorite experiences of, of integrating with a culture that is so different <laughs> than, than what I'm used to in an environment that is just an adventurer's dream. The Gobi Desert and Mongolia as a whole is such a special place. And I, I've had the opportunity to go to some other pretty amazing places, the Himalayas in Nepal, yeah. the Amazon in Peru and Colombia. So I've been to some pretty awesome, different type of environment. But God, the Gobi Desert and Mongolia is this contrast that changes day to day with this incredible culture that is so nestled in history, especially being a former military guy in the history of Mongolia. I mean, it shaped the world. The Qing dynasty is, is Chinggis Khan is like one of his grandsons. You cannot look at the world today and not see how it was shaped by Mongolia. Yet to see Mongolia and yeah. have it still be so connected to its history right. for me was incredible and, and the experience I will never forget. So Amazing. That sounds like an amazing experience. Were there any other trips that kind of stand out in your mind? The work I did uh, after Hurricane Maria uh, in, in the Caribbean and Puerto Rico specifically. So we went down following hurricane Irma to St. Croix and then ended up having hurricane Maria kind of come in out of nowhere. So we ended up splitting forces and John kept a team on St. Croix and I took a team to Puerto Rico and we rode out hurricane Maria in the Caribbean, which was an experience to say the least. I'm from Idaho like, and hurricanes yeah. sometimes on the news, but going through a category five and category four storm was an experience. And what it ended up being for me, and one of the reasons it's it's so special, was ten years active duty in the military. You know, seen a few things, have been through destruction and mm-hmm. and everything that happens in, in modern warfare. And the other side of this, getting to going through trauma with a ton of ton of people and an incredibly traumatic event, and then also being part of the solution and part of the reconstruction and having the opportunity to kind of reset that clock, like oh all right, this just happened. Let's go forward and then kind of rebuild and, and work with everyone and connect with all these incredible people who are just had everything taken away from them, everything destroyed. In the military, I'd been on the side where it's like, hey, I'm going into an area that I just destroyed. And now I'm trying to do what I need to right. do and then mitigate the consequences best and then move on to the next objective. And now being in there, mm-hmm. in this process of, of being able to see the destruction and how it affects yourself and everyone around you, and then being part of the solution. I mean, 
we spent we spent days finding places to live in, in Puerto Rico. Like same time we're trying to to kick off our program and start doing work. I've got my some of my teammates with me, their families, kids, grandmothers, like trying to manage, hey, where are we gonna stay? How are we gonna get water? How are we gonna get food? Hey, we're out of insulin. Let's go, let's we gotta find testing strips for insulin for one of my friend's sons who's a diabetic. Going through those processes and then watching the way everybody yeah. came together in, in those areas and relied on each other and then rebuilt and recovered together turned out to be one of the most incredible processes of recovery for me. I don't think I'd realized how much of, of my humanity and how much my, my years of service had impacted me. I kind of left being like, I'm good. You know, I can start this veteran program. I can help other vets because they're having an issue with mm -hmm. it, but I'm good. I didn't realize how much I'd lost and how damaged I was. And so going through this yeah. process of kind of resetting the clock and going through this traumatic yeah. event with everybody together and having those emotions and I experienced, and then actually being able to rebuild and recover and grow through the next year was personally one of the most profound experiences I've had in my life and, and reset the clock for me and, and help me get back to where to where I am now, which is somewhere I don't think I've been in, in nearly a decade. And that, that makes that probably one of the more special experiences in my life. Yeah, it certainly sounds like an amazing experience. I think it highlights this idea of guerrilla humanitarianism as well, when you're kind of running to find those places to live, find those places to get water just for yourself as well as the people around you. Yeah. Beyond that, what are some of the major projects that Waves for Water is working on at the moment? So we have we have a few major partnerships on the near term. We have a good partnership with Panerai, amazing watch company that's going to take us to both Honduras and Colombia, to some pretty austere and remote regions. So some of the more, more I won't say dangerous, but more difficult areas to get to. So it kind of core in line with us is like, hey, let's go find the people that are they're kind of the forgotten ones, right. and let's get out after them. So that's what's one major partnership coming up that I'm excited about in Honduras and Colombia. And then we have some great partnerships with organizations like the Global Shapers with one of our other team members who's working throughout Central and South America. And so it's we, we have some two major initiatives going there, which are great. And then as well as uh, our partnership with BMW, uh, mm -hmm. Care for Water programs continuing to grow. And so we're working more and more with BMW Motorrad, financial services, and just BMW Group as a whole in Indonesia, Thailand, Mexico, South Africa, Brazil. So it's pretty, pretty fantastic. And India. So a lot of great projects. Earlier on, we touched on how water scarcity or the access to clean water is a global problem. But could you maybe talk about how big of an issue this is on a global scale? And more importantly, do you think it's a solvable problem? I, I mean, I think everybody understands the, the scope of this problem. You have nearly a billion people that have access to clean water around the world. And, and that is in itself. Mm -hmm. When you look at a global problem, I, I'm, I've become a firm believer that I don't think there's a problem on this planet that, that we as human beings can't solve. Like I, I'm continually impressed with what human beings can do. Like, uh, obviously we, we tend to focus on the negative in the world and the impact we've had on mm -hmm. our planet. But when you look at what people can do in from the rainforests to the mountains, like you watch what individual people and communities more importantly can achieve. I really don't think there's anything we can't accomplish when we come together and set our minds to it. So when we look at global problems, it, I would love to see us focus as a planet on the global water crisis, because I think we can absolutely solve this problem we have to decide what we want to prioritize. And if enough people can prioritize the global water crisis, then it is absolutely solvable. Fantastic. Which kind of brings us on to if people do want to get involved or find out more about Waves for Water, how can they do that? Yeah, I think the best way to go to our website, wavesforwater.org. 
Uh, we're also on Instagram and all the good social media platforms at Waves for Water. Take a look at us and hopefully our mission connects with you. And if you want to support, reach out. We're happy to connect with you. So Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you for telling us all about your trip and your project as a whole. Thank you for coming on Catalyst Travel and Purpose and for joining the conversation about social action and travel. Listeners, thank you for listening. You can find out more Travel and Purpose podcasts at travelandpurpose.com. You can find a platform for social action and travel content at catalyst.cm. If you have your own travel and purpose stories to share and feel your story would be right for our travel and purpose podcast, let us know by emailing info at catalyst.cm and we may invite you on one of our next conversations. 